This is an NFX mashup, where we string clips from past episodes together under the same topic. Startups have many more options today than ever before, and much earlier in their life cycles, for entering the public markets. Founders are constantly looking for advice on how to think about traditional IPO versus SPAC versus direct listing, and how to even answer the question, am I ready to be a public company? So in this episode, we hear from Eventbrite co-founder Kevin Hartz, Hippo founder Asaf Wand, and the IPO whisperer Lisa Beyer on their experience and advice around taking tech companies public. And now, on to the show. Like in the simplest terms, how would you describe a SPAC? A SPAC is a shell company that raised money for the sole purpose, right? SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company. That's what it stands for. It's a shell that raised money to buy an operating company. And historically, because you're right, they've been around for a long time. Historically, it was companies that probably couldn't get public the regular way. Maybe they were in gambling. Maybe all the cannabis companies went public via SPAC. It was for those that where there was some legitimate fear that they wouldn't be able to get public any other way. Over the past year, that has sort of changed, sort of. And what I mean by that is you still don't see the best of the best going public by a SPAC, but it's certainly the promise of a SPAC. If you're Pete Flint and you're running Trulia, the SPAC's going to come to you and say, here's why you want to do a SPAC instead of an IPO. It's quicker and we will guarantee you the price up front. So you don't need to wait to see what the market's going to pay for your stock. I'm telling you, your company is worth $5.6 billion. We can shake hands on them right now and go on our merry way. And that's kind of the pitch. And is there any from the types of companies that's suitable for each option out of these four options? You know, I know Opendoor, for instance, went public via a SPAC. Virgin Galactic went public via a SPAC. You know, they seem to be reasonably successful examples. Like out of the other, in Coinbase, I think was a direct listing. Like, are there any, you know, particular models that are more appropriate for one type of company over another? Yes. At the end of the day, it all is up to management. But let's look at Virgin Galactic. Let's look at the electric car or flying car businesses that are going public by a SPAC. What do they have in common? There's no revenue yet. And so they are much more difficult to value by traditional public investors because there's so much left to be proven. So it is the companies, even Open Door, just beginning to prove its model, frankly. And so companies that are earlier in, frankly, building out the business can go public sooner if they choose a SPAC. Now, there's the going public and there's the being public. And those are very different things that we'll come back to. But they can probably get public sooner than would otherwise be the case. In the case of, oh, let's look at Spotify because it was the first direct listing. That was a great example of a company to go do a direct listing because the people who owned the stock prior when it was still public were the record labels. The record labels are not institutional investors. They're interested in music. They didn't want to be portfolio managers. So the direct listing allowed them to sell out relatively quickly what they own to get liquidity for the company and to frankly put big honking liquid dollars in their own bank accounts and to move along. Didn't really matter to them who owned the stock afterwards, as long as it wasn't them. And the price, you know, a dollar or five dollars here or there, sure, everybody wants more. But again, it wasn't critical for them. So that was a great example of a company where the early investors had totally reasonable reasons to want to get out. Another example of a company that wisely chose a direct listing is Asana, where the largest shareholder is also involved on a day-to-day basis. He's right and he's the opposite of Spotify. He's not trying to get out. He's just trying to create a liquid market for his employees. And again, since he's the biggest shareholder, if the stock goes out with a great price, good. If the stock goes out with a slightly less price, he doesn't care. And if anything, 
Untoward it happened that he could be right there to buy shares back. It was another smart way to go public. But those are the unusual companies. There are certainly others, but those are sort of unusual direct listings. The less well-known a business is, the more it probably might want to take a more traditional route. Because to your point earlier, Pete, the regular IPO route does get you more attention. And if part of the purpose is to build the brand, you might want to take a more traditional route. And then just thinking through the SPACs, the number of perhaps companies we have longer operating history and sort of more traditional types of companies with good revenue that are choosing the SPAC path. What might be some examples there? Yes. I think on the SPAC route, it is companies that just want to get the dollars in hand that are attracted to the high valuation that they agree to with the sponsor of the SPAC, the folks who took the shell company public and are just in a hurry to get out there. And Kevin, we touched on earlier just around this, you know, a reluctance in certain companies to go public. Just why do you think that is? And just you also mentioned perhaps, you know, potentially being pushed out of the nest by some investors or or not. What do you think is going on in the minds of founders? And then I'd love to touch on like Stripe, for an example, which is a very high profile company, like seems to be sort of, uh, you know, spending a crazy long time being private. Like what do you think is going through their head right now? Well, there's always exceptions to the rule. I think the conventional wisdom, which is changing, is to stay private at all costs. But you give the example of Stripe, and and that is an outlier of a company of massive size and growth in profits that is uh, still private. The expression is that light is the best antiseptic is what comes to mind in that a company out in the public eye will have much more responsiveness in the business and in the performance. Whereas what we've seen over the years happen often is just round after round of private capital where governance uh, often can take a hit. Poor governance, as we saw in WeWork, we see less accountability to the numbers, to the right growth measures. And so it can actually have this kind of opposite effect. The staying private gives a sense of kind of control, but I think it's a misnomer. And we're seeing the market now swing back, that pendulum swing back to what we saw in the 90s. And that's staying private for a very short amount of time relative to today. Why do you think that is? I mean, obviously, you know, the time frame it sort of was extremely short back in 2000, the dot-com bubble, you know, companies would go public, you know, more as a concept, IPO, and then you've kind of saw this extension, you know, Facebook, you know, was an example of that and Stripe today. And now you've got this sort of compression again, where you've seen companies accessing the public markets very, very quickly. What's driving that? What do you think that is? Capitalism is like a pendulum. It never stays right in the center. It always swings one direction or the other uh, from boom to bust to IPO early to IPO very late. And we're just swinging back from the staying private at all costs back that other direction because the those thoughts from you know, the period of the 90s are coming back, having the currency for acquisition, having this kind of marketing event, having this responsiveness to the street, kind of open sourcing your business model that you can gain insights. So there are all these great reasons for going public that were kind of put to the wayside of the previous conventional wisdom of staying private in the control and ownership and that that brought. Some people think of an IPO as an exit. How should founders think about a a sort of public listing? Is that really an exit for them? Well, there is a company as a case study that went public in the 1980s at a 500 million valuation. There was a company in the 90s that went 
public at a $500 million valuation. And that was Microsoft and Amazon, respectively, both worth, you know, the, that have surpassed that magical trillion dollar market cap number. So it's in exit is a, a misnomer. It, I think it was a term that venture capitalists use that as soon as a company went public, it was their fiduciary responsibility to distribute shares. And thus the term kind of exit came about. But today the reality is, is that it's just the beginning of a much longer journey. We're here to build enduring businesses that last for generations. And there's really no difference between private and public. Julia and I, for example, haven't sold a single share of uh, Eventbrite. So we can't say we've exited in any manner since the IPO. We've just completely locked ourselves up. It's quite unique to do that. So kudos to you guys. Maybe switch gears a little bit and let's talk about SPACs and the route to going public. And Kevin, you've been deep in the SPAC world for a while now. Like, I guess, tell us kind of what was the catalyst to get involved and just what do you focus on as a SPAC sponsor now? A great question. What we you know, saw out in the market was that our job is to look for new phenomenon, new companies that are emerging that are going to really have an impact on the world. And Bitcoin, cryptocurrency kind of emerged and was this kind of strained and hated by many phenomenon, which now has a trillion dollar market cap. And SPACs are similarly, they were this strange kind of instrument that would, is not as reputable background that were coming into the mainstream you know, over the last year. And if you looked at them, were a very effective, are a very effective means to get a company into the public light. And so, you know, kind of the job or my kind of mission and quest here is to help this form into in a real industry of helping private companies get into the public markets. So it's kind of like venture capital in the 80s and 90s was this backwater niche industry. And we see what it has done today. And it's really transformed the innovation economy. And we see the same with SPACs. And it's going through its boom and bust phases right now. But we all know from our experience in tech that that's just how the world works. So let's just take a hypothetical. So let's say I'm running a 100 million revenue startup, 150 people, and I'm getting seven SPAC offers a week. If you were advising the CEO, which I know you advise many early stage CEOs, like what would you advise them to do? And what would be non-obvious? Yeah, the question is, is do they want to be a public company? And that's the first question, because it's not just a SPAC option. It's a SPAC option, a traditional IPO or a direct listing. So there's really kind of a suite of options. So that that's really the first question is, do they want to be in the public markets? And the second question is, you know, which direction suits that company the best? You know, I've obviously biased towards the SPAC route, but at Eventbrite, I went through the traditional IPO route. And while it had its challenges, was a good experience for us. So that's the starting point. The other side is that for a company that, you know, I'm assuming with 100 million in revenue and a software business has probably got a steady growth curve. And so assuming that it has that steady growth curve, that it has that right management team in place, all those things that Julia talked about, what it takes to be public should be applicable here. And so then is it door A, B or C, SPAC, traditional IPO or direct listing? So maybe shifting gears a little bit, you announced just recently that you are going to go public via a SPAC. And, you know, I'm sure all the audience have heard of SPACs by this point, but maybe if you could just share a little bit about the rationale behind that and kind of tell us what's going on in terms of what Hippo is doing. Sure. We put a lot of thought into that. It was, oh God, we started being bombarded 
by different SPACs, I would say mid last year. And in the beginning, we kind of like nudged them all out because we thought it's the bottom fiddles of Wall Street. I don't know how else to kind of uh, describe it. That was the perception in the market. And then happened several things that basically made us think about it differently. The first one, we became a bit jaded by Wall Street. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of uh, close friends of ours, IPO, went public, Wall Street presented, this is the price, this is the stock, and then stock went up 80% at day one. And they're all looking at themselves and everybody's like, oh, that's awesome. But the CFO is saying, damn, I just left hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. That's ridiculous. That wasn't, you know, and who are the main customers for Wall Street? Is it Hippo or is it Wellington? Is it T-Row Price or is it, uh, you know, Company X? So that was the first thing. The second thing, which was, why is it so good to be 25 times oversubscribed? Well, that looks like a very weird thing for us. And the component that had to do with, I need an analyst to present my basically forecast instead of me talking to the investors and tell them what I see as my five-year kind of forecast. There was just something in the process didn't really gel with us well enough. So that was one. And then... On the other side, some of our current investors and people that I think the world of, and I think our top professionals on the field, started setting up their own SPACs. So Rebit Capital, which I think are you know amongst the best fintech investors around, and Mickey and Nick are amazing. I was like, whoa, where did this came from? Why did you set up a, fund, a SPAC? And Dragonir as well, which is also our investor. You know, and Jared and Mark are you know best of read. So I could have a discussion with people that I trust to get another kind of point of view and the mindset. So that helped us educate. So we were looking at it and we became a lot more, okay, that's actually interesting. I do think that there are some components that they put too much weight on the benefit of a SPAC versus an IPO, which in hindsight, doing the process now, I think it was a disproportionate amount of weight. And I can get to that in a minute. So firstly, we went to study this instrument. We were going to do an IPO. We were about, you know, prepping an S1 to do a confidential S1 filing. So we were, you know, the company would have been public. Let me split it into two things. I think before any of that coming, before anybody considered a SPAC, you should ask yourself two questions before. The first question, is the company ready to be a public company? You will always miss out on that because you're running a company and all of a sudden a SPAC reach you and like, oh, fine. Wow. Well, we can be a public company and raise $400 million. That's amazing. But you never stop to say, do you have the right processes in place? Can you forecast, I don't know, eight quarters into the future and beat and raise your numbers? How have you been doing recently on the beat and raise with your board? Do you have a GC that can be a GC of a public company? Do you have audited financial documents for the last two years as a public company? Do you have a CISO in the company because you're going to be attacked like crazy by cyber? Do you have a, a CFO that can actually do it? There's just a bunch of questions that you should really ask yourself. And people kind of forgot. And we know quite a few people that signed with a SPAC and now we're like, oh God, we need to do everything. And they're like, where did this thing form? So I think that's the first question. Second question is, is it the right thing for the company to be a public company? I don't know if free company is the right thing for them to be a public company or in the right timing. We thought for insurance, it's awesome because we're in a game of trust. We're going to get a lot of credibility. It's good for our partnership. It's good for a lot of stuff. It matters if Pete is calling my call center and someone you're going to ask, who are you guys exactly? And one of my agents is going to say, oh, and we're uh, listed on X, Y, and Z. Like it's just, there's something which resonates very differently. So you need one, is the company ready to be public? B, is the right thing for the company to be a public company? Once you tick mark these two things, which people always forget, then I have fiduciary duty in front of my board to present to them that there's not just one way to go public. There's actually three. We can do a standard IPO. We can do a SPAC or we can do direct listing. 
And each one has a bit of a pros and cons, but it's my job to present the options to my board. At that point of time, we're like, okay, fine. We're ready. We want to do, let's figure it out. And we said that there was something in the dichotomy of being a public company, which you're in the warm and fuzzy place of private company. And then one millisecond later, you're a public company and people can trade in and out of your shares and everything is out there. And we're like, whoa, I want to have something which, can I have someone who somewhat helped me mitigate that transition? And we came across, uh, you know, Reed and Mark, and there's a person who lives in Palo Alto. The optionality to work with Reed and Mark is, I'll be the dumbest person in the world to resist that optionality. It's Reed Hoffman and Mark Pincus who built a couple of successful companies and thinking about that and came to the realization that they want to do a SPAC. They call it being VC on scale to help a company and specific ventures that they think are in their reinvention and transition mode to build the next franchise of their industry, to stay there for a long time, to align, to join the board, to basically help this company grow was a full alignment and a meeting of the mind. And, you know, that's why we decided to go with them. And then, so that's on that. Sorry, I'm talking too much on this, but I want to talk about the framework that we did for SPAC, which I think is something interesting as well. Please. So after we talked to several, we put a framework on SPACs and we called it, there were three components. The first one was price. By the way, it wasn't about maximizing price. It was, what do we think is a fair price for the company to go public that is going to be right for our shareholders, right for the pipe investor? If you're going to be too high, no pipe investor want to do it. How can we make sure that some growth left in the market, that investors are coming in are still going to do well? I don't want to go public and then, you know, stock downs 20%. It's not something that we wanted. So we put something that we thought that's the fair price for the company and the board was fully aligned. It was more of a gating component rather than a maximization algo. Second thing was certainty. So because in SPAC, one of the things is beneficial is you get certainty on the price because I signed on the merger agreement and whatever it was, February, and that's going to be the price when we dispac three, four months down the line, as opposed to when you're doing an IPO, which you're like, you know, you're prepping everything and then you have 10 days that you need or whatever it is that you're doing your roadshow. And if the window is open, the window is not open and then you come up with a price. So I want to make sure that if I'm taking advantage of the certainty, I actually get the certainty. And the certainty you get by several components. There's a couple of paragraphs about minimum financing requirement and stuff like that. But the main one was the reputational risk of our partner, because Reed and Mark has more to lose by a screw up of this transaction than Asaf because they built a bigger reputation for themselves and they have more. And I wanted something that basically aligns that way. I wanted someone that we call it the industrial strength of a SPAC. I didn't want off SPAC. I wanted someone who SPAC'd before, who's going to have a family of SPACs later on, who's going to have a reputational risk on continuation doing that and know-how, a relationship with investors, a relationship with the street, and bring us a lot more value. So we call it industrial strength, and that adds to the certainty of the transaction. And the third one was alignment. We wanted people that are aligned with us and not using it as a transaction. And that has to do with the terms that you have, which is, you know, the promote, how they're earning it, the time that they have until they're basically making. So, you know, we're locked for a certain time and they're locked for a certain time. A board seat, investment in the pipe and not just in the space. There's a bunch of things. And then we had this meeting of the mind that the valuation is what we wanted. We love the partners. We are very certain of this thing. And we look at it as a partnership as opposed to a transaction, which is awesome. And thirdly, an alignment. We said, fine, I think it's the most preferential way to go public if we can. And that's what we did. 
Yeah, that's such a terrific story and context. You know, I remember taking Truly a Public in 2012. And, you know, it seemed at the time the kind of expected process, but you look at where it is today and it's sort of incredibly antiquated and painful and expensive and, you know, almost feels like Wall Street and the banks kind of really created this opportunity themselves. Like, you know, when you see this friction in a market, it's like water, something will flow around it to find a more efficient route. And then, you know, we'll see what happens with SPACs, but it feels like they're here to stay. And I couldn't agree more that, you know, Reader Mark are just exceptional entrepreneurs, that the opportunity to have them in your camp, as opposed to purely financially motivated folks, is such a unique opportunity. The kudos to you. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. Send this episode to any friends that may need these insights and frameworks, and feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast.